This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The shootings at Columbine High School 20 years ago changed not just Colorado, but America and the world. Today, another episode of Since Columbine, our radio series and podcast. CPR's Andrea Dukakis explores what's been learned about school shooters and about stopping them. A warning, her story contains material that might not be suitable for some listeners. Yes, hello. Hi, how are you doing? Well, on my way over here, I received a phone call from a reporter in Brazil because they had a school shooting there today, reportedly involving two perpetrators. So I am suddenly inundated with email requests for interviews. This was a few weeks ago when I spoke with psychologist Peter Langman, but it could be any day when Langman gets a call about a shooting. Back in 1999, Langman was an intern at a psychiatric hospital for kids in Pennsylvania, where he still lives. On April 20th that year, across the country in Colorado, two students walked into their school with guns. They killed 13 other people, then killed themselves. Just 10 days later, on April 30th, a 16-year-old boy was admitted to our facility because he was seen as a Columbine-type risk. I was assigned to do an evaluation to determine if he really was a potential mass murderer. And what did you find? I thought there was a good reason for people to be concerned. He had been engaging in some very strange and disturbing behavior. He also had a hit list of potential victims. And I thought he was, without any intervention, someone who could have gone on an attack. That was the first potential school shooter Langman saw, but not the last. Dozens followed. Langman is among the most prominent of a growing breed of psychologists. They're ones that study potential school shooters and train others to spot them in order to stop more killings. This is Since Columbine, a podcast from Colorado Public Radio about how one shooting 20 years ago changed America. Today, what we know about mass shooters themselves and whether we've learned anything in 20 years that could actually stop the next one. Langman's research on this has had audiences at the Department of Homeland Security and with President Obama. He's presented at the FBI in Quantico. And I first saw him giving one of his talks to school and law enforcement officials here in Colorado. They were riveted. And it's not just kids who get teased, because kids get teased in every school, probably every day of the year across the country. Teasing may contribute to depression or rage. By itself, it does not cause mass murder. Playing a violent video game does not cause mass murder. Langman is a formal guy, but underlying the clinical way of speaking is a person who thinks about this work all the time, obsessively. He told me he goes bird watching and writes plays to get a mental break. He's surprised when he can go two hours without thinking about it. Langman's collected more than 500 documents on 150 perpetrators. It's his life's work, this belief that assessing individual threats based on psychology and behavior can prevent attacks. 
And yet he knows better than anyone that giving shooters any attention could invite copycats. It's always disheartening. And uh, I just kind of feel my gut sink every time there's a headline or I hear from somebody that there's been another school shooting. Um, Because so many people are doing so much to keep people safe, and yet these attacks still happen. And they happen, Langman says, in part because of Columbine itself. I've identified 43 perpetrators of shootings or other types of mass attacks who have cited uh, Columbine in one way or another. 43 perpetrators. Yes. And there have been dozens of other people planning attacks who cited Columbine but who were stopped. One of those happened in 2015. A 16-year-old girl in Colorado planned to attack her school, Mountain Vista High School in Douglas County. She talked about it later. The tape is a little hard to hear. But she said she idolized the Columbine shooters and watched documentaries about them. That really inspired it, to be honest. Like, I don't know, I really, 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 really connected to them, I guess. This girl had been thinking about an attack like this when she met another girl who was thinking the same thing. She was like, let's shoot up the school. Like, like I'm not not joking. And I was down because I had been planning that for, like, a few months. This case illustrates a lot of what Langman's learned about how to identify and stop potential shooters. In the case of the girls, they were stopped which gave law enforcement an unusual look inside their thinking. Prosecutor Jason Sears oversaw the case. He says officers discovered one of the girls had done research on guns and how much they cost. She laid it all out. She told law enforcement about the materials, what was planned, who was involved. The girls had journals. There was a map of the inside of the school with notes about what areas were most crowded and at what times. It's common for teens who commit mass shootings or are thinking about it to write about it, maybe in a diary, social media, or a school paper. Or, Langman says, they actually will tell a friend about it. And sometimes the things that they disclose to their peers are very clear and explicit. They will simply announce, I'm going to bring a gun to school and kill people. Columbine is case in point. There were lots of signs. One of the shooters wrote a creative writing paper in a class about a lone gunman who goes on a killing spree. In the tape we heard earlier with the girl in Douglas County, she was being interviewed by a detective. He asked her about some of the things she'd written in her journal, about killing herself and other people. If you don't want to be here and you're that unhappy, what is the accomplishment if you take other people's lives? Um, it would be taking people down with me and people would know how I felt and people would know how much pain I was in and people would know how much I hated everyone and I would be making a name for myself. Langman says a lot of times the school shooters he studies want to be famous. They expect to go down in history They want to make their mark. They want people to know their name. And they often will cite a previous mass killer who received widespread attention and make very clear they want the same thing, so they're going to do the same kind of act. The girl in Douglas County wrote about a tough upbringing. She moved from state to state and lived with different family members. She felt neglected and wanted others to suffer, too. 
Do you think you still feel that way if you felt people paid attention to you and understood how you feel? I think if I was, yeah, I think if I was paid attention to more and I was taken more seriously and if I got more support and love, then I would feel this way and The girl declined an interview from where she is now in a youth detention facility. The other girl was recently released. It's unusual for girls to plan an attack like this. Peter Langman says most school shooters are male, about 95%. And he's found many of them are insecure about sex and their appearance. And that's a source of great distress to them in terms of their budding masculinity. So they feel often profoundly inadequate as males, and that may be one of the factors driving them to get a gun because a gun makes you powerful. Access to guns isn't lost on Langman as part of this whole puzzle of how to stop school shootings. He says his research shows most young shooters get their guns from a parent or relative who failed to secure them. He sees it as less about changing gun laws than teaching gun owners to keep weapons secure. One more point about the Douglas County case. It was uncovered when someone texted into an anonymous tip line for kids, concerned the girl was depressed and suicidal. Police took her to Children's Hospital for help. That's when they discovered the shooting plot. Psychologist Peter Langman says this isn't the only time tip lines may have helped stop school shootings. If anyone knows what's about to happen at the school, it's probably the other students. And making it easy for them to come forward is a huge step in the right direction. So anything that's going to help the flow of information to the people who need it is a good thing. Langman says there's no clear profile of a school shooter. But he has identified common psychological types. First, traumatized shooters. They're kids who come from families with chronic and severe dysfunction and violence. Then, shooters with psychopathy, characterized by narcissism and lack of empathy. And finally, there are kids with psychosis, marked by delusions or bizarre thinking. But other experts, like police psychologist John Nicoletti, say it's dangerous to focus too much on mental illness when trying to stop school shootings. What we're starting to see is a witch hunt against mentally ill people. 99% of the folks who have a mental health issue aren't violent. Nicoletti is another one of the stars in the threat assessment field. He was on the scene after Columbine, the Aurora Theater shooting, among others. He was also a consultant on the case of the Douglas County girls, which he says follows a pattern he sees a lot. You got that perceived injustice and feeling victimized, and you got kind of the obsession where you're looking at weapons and looking at maps, and then you got to take your action. Yeah, that's actually very typical. In his research, Nicoletti emphasizes some of the same things as Langman, like how most shooters make plans in advance. That gives everyone else the chance to stop them. Nicoletti stresses how important communication is to making that happen. When it doesn't, he says, things can go very wrong. In Parkland, different individuals had data points, whether it's the FBI or law enforcement or school or whatever. What was happening is there was not a vortex. A vortex, Nicoletti says, is where everyone at school shares information about a student who might be a potential threat. So how do you create a vortex in a school? It's actually really easy. You have the school get the key people, rather it's, you know, the 
head of security and SROs, school resource officers, psychologists. So that becomes your core group. And then based on what's going on, you may have a teacher or coach or bus driver come in and give you information. And that's not just about stopping kids who want to harm others. It's also about students who may want to harm themselves. That's the research, the training, and the version on paper. Then it's up to people like Officer Jason Gallardo to put Nicoletti and Langman's work into action. D-Money. Yeah? Come here, brother. I'm on trouble. No, never. No, this is... Gallardo was on patrol for a decade before he ended up at Littleton High School. He graduated from Littleton 30 years ago. Gallardo is an SRO, or school resource officer, and he likes to walk the halls, checking in with students. All right, John? You sure? Okay. With more students struggling with mental illness and with the potential for violence in schools, SROs work on the front lines. Gallardo says he wants students to know he cares about them. Yeah. How's Ultimate Frisbee going? It's going all right. Um, you know, some of them just need a hello in the morning, and it's hard watching a thousand kids come through the door and think, what's he going through? What's he going through? Is he okay today? When you walk in the door in the morning, heck, we're the same way at work, right? Someone gives you a great greeting in the morning. Hey, Andrea, how's things going? How was your volleyball game last night? So you're like, wow, I feel better already. You know, this person is interested in what I have to say. Of course, saying hi, being interested, doesn't solve everything. In terms of um, a potential student that could be violent, have you ever had a scenario that concerned you? And obviously not using names, but... um, Pause it for a sec. Yeah. Gallardo asked me to turn off my recorder because he didn't want the details public. The short version is that last fall, a student went to school administrators. She had seen something that made her think another student was a threat. Turns out the threat was real. The student got expelled, went to counseling, and law enforcement still monitors him now. It weighs on Gallardo to have to do this. For me, it's constant. Am I going to be in the right spot? Am I going to be able to get to that person before they can get to anyone else? The nice thing for me is I know in my heart I'm going, okay? You will not see me sitting in my car when somebody's getting hurt in there. You won't see me running away. You won't see me hiding. I took this job. I knew that I would be willing to die for a kid, and my family knows that. He's willing to die if a shooter comes in the school. Every situation is potentially that serious for Gallardo. For Nicoletti, too, the expert who warns against typecasting potential shooters, he says rationalizing someone's behavior, no matter who they are, can be dangerous. One of the things that gets me concerned when I'm doing a threat assessment is if the folks I'm interacting with, one of them inserts the word just in the sentence structure. They were just joking, just planning, just having a bad day. And then what happens is people around buy into that and then they minimize That kind of diligence makes stopping mass shootings possible. And it's what gives me hope in this story, a little bit of comfort, knowing that all this research, what Langman and Nicoletti are doing, and the work of people like Gallardo, it means stopping school shootings isn't actually about finding a needle in a haystack. It's about knowing what to look for. Langman says we've come a long way in that regard since Columbine. Many potential school shootings are foiled, 
In many cases, we don't even know the attacks that are being stopped because they don't make the media. So they tend to fly under the radar, but they are being stopped. That knowledge helps Langman when he starts feeling down. Yes, even this academic clinician admits the work can get to him, and it did especially when his own kids were little. My awareness of the danger sometimes can get exaggerated as a parent and um, just worry at times maybe when there's no need to worry. Because while one shooting is too many, Langman knows better than anyone that school shootings are rare, even though the threat can seem monumental. He also knows his phone will ring the minute another one happens. CPR's Andrea Dukakis in our series Since Columbine about how America has changed 20 years after the shootings. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Since Columbine, it's become more common for journalists and public officials to avoid using the names of attackers. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern talked about this recently just after the mass shooting there. He sought many things from his act of terror, but one was notoriety. And that is why you will never hear me mention his name. He is a terrorist. He is a criminal. He is an extremist. But he will, when I speak, be nameless. At Colorado Public Radio, we use the names of mass shooters sparingly. We invoke them only when needed to tell a news story. And CPR's Andrea Dukakis is here to talk about this. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Ryan. Explain the effort to avoid naming shooters. After Columbine, there was just so much attention on the two shooters. Family members say the shooters got more attention than the victims, and they say it made a horrible loss even worse. Connie Sanders' father, Dave Sanders, died in the attack. He was a teacher and coach at Columbine, and he's credited with getting dozens of students out of harm's way during the shootings. Connie Sanders says it's frustrating there's been so much focus on her dad's killers and mass killers in general. She says it came into sharp focus for her a few years ago. She was on a plane to meet with families of victims of Sandy Hook and the Virginia Tech shootings. And I had one of the popular magazines, People magazine, and in it, it said the top 50 most notorious murderers. And on that page were pictures of all of the murderers of these people's loved ones. And I just thought, I can't do this. We can't keep fueling future murders. All of this is part of an organized movement to steer clear of naming perpetrators. Tell us about that. Right. It's called No Notoriety. And the goal is to get the media and others to avoid continually naming perpetrators in mass shootings. Connie Sanders is part of the group. It was started by a couple, Tom and Karen Teves. They lost their son, Alex, in the Aurora Theater shooting. Tom Teeves says when the attack happened, he and his wife were just starting vacation in Hawaii, obviously miles away from Aurora. We could get nothing but sensational pictures of the killer, of his booby-trapped apartment. There was nothing on the victims. And quite frankly, we couldn't get anybody on the phone to help us either. So the only thing we had was the Internet and basically the media And their only focus was on the killer. 
Teve says after they buried their son, they started doing research on mass killers. It became quite obvious that the major reason these shootings happen is because these folks can't make it in life, so they want to make it by killing other people. Teve says, and we mentioned this in our earlier story, it's not only the fame issue, there's also research that shows past shooters inspire copycats. But as you just reported, there seems to be a benefit to looking into who these shooters were in order to stop them. That's true. Teve says he totally agrees with that. We're not saying don't study them. We're saying that you should research them, find out whatever characteristics are similar to help you find what would then hopefully stop someone from doing this by getting them the help they need. But the name is irrelevant. No notoriety is committed to keeping names as much as possible out of the media. And then there's this group trying to get the press to shine a light on something else. Right. A group of kids from Columbine High School have launched a campaign. It's called hashtag my last shot. And they're urging people to put a small sticker on their ID cards or other personal items. And the sticker says, quote, in the event that I die from gun violence, please publicize the photo of my death. The idea is that people are too often sheltered from horrific images like dead bodies. Mm. These kids think publicizing these photos would shock people and that it might get them to pay more more attention to the horror of these mass shootings and to doing something about them. So it's posthumous permission to say, use those gory images. Right. My goodness. Andrea, thanks for being with us. Sure. CPR's Andrea Dukakis, the 20th anniversary of the Columbine shootings is April 20th. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News, and our program continues in the next half hour. I'm Ryan Warner. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committee. It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. After money goes missing from a white Southern home in the civil rights era, all eyes turn to the family's maid, Caroline. That's the big plot twist in the play Caroline or Change, which raises questions about class, race, and family. It opens Friday at the Fox Theater in Aurora and stars Mary Louise Lee. She joins my colleague Avery Lill along with some young co-stars. Hi, Mary Louise. Good morning. How you doing? Doing well, thanks. Also joining us are Sophia Dotson and Nathaniel Waite-Lutz. They're both in seventh grade at the Denver School of Arts, and they share another crucial role in the production, playing the part of Noah. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Mary Louise, you're a day away from opening. Do you still get butterflies? I do. I do. Um, But, you know, as soon as I hit the stage, it's like, ah, Everything, the adrenaline just takes over and then I'm just in my zone. So I enjoy what I do. I I love what I do. And um, that's why it's just it it just becomes very easy. I can only imagine. Uh, Nathaniel, what makes you more nervous, an opening night or a big math test? (laughs) Um, I mean, I don't really get nervous for math tests. I mean, I'm terrible at math. So if I'm if I... (laughs) 
I mean, I try, but like, you know. <laughs> Do you still get nervous and um, uh, for a big play? Uh, yeah, I get I get nervous, but um, I I am it's more excitement than nerves. Sophia, you're sharing the role of Noah with Nathaniel. You know, alternating performances each night. How often have you have you been asked to play the part of a boy? Um, well, in youth theater, I've played a couple boys. Like in Peter Pan, I was a lost boy. And in Susical, I was JoJo. So I've played boys a couple times, so it's it's really fun. And how do you prepare for that? Um, well, I just think of it as I'm playing a person, not really a boy. And I know I'm playing a boy, but, like, I really think of it as just Noah, not a gender. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mary Louise, this production gets into some pretty heavy topics that are very important to African Americans. Mm-hmm. How close to home are some of the storylines to experiences you or your family have had? You know, um, of course, I was not born when um, President Kennedy was assassinated um, or even when Martin Luther King was assassinated. But um, it does hit very hard because I do I've heard from, you know, my family members, relatives and everything of the horrible times it was um, during those periods and um, just, you know, economically as well um, and dealing with um, uh, the 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 things that were going on during that time period. It, it was just um, so it makes me realize that um, life is just let me say this. A lot of things are, are repeated right now during this time period of what went on then, maybe not the assassinations, but a lot of different mm-hmm. things um, racially and um, socially, economically. So, And I don't want to give away too much of the plot of the play, but what kind of discussions do you hope that this play sparks? You know, um, just like I said, you know, a lot of things that went on back then are, you know, repeat, history repeats itself. Um, I think there there is... Uh, opportunity. There are opportunities to change. Um, and that's the biggest thing in this show. And that's all I'm going to give you is that, <laughs> that there are opportunities to change in every aspect of your life. And I like that you're bringing up the word change. That's obviously mm-hmm. important in the title of this show is Caroline or change. But I think that that word is pretty open to interpretation. What does change mean for you? You know, change means um, to be a better person. Uh, to not only yourself, but to other people. Um, there's room for that. Oh, my gosh, especially nowadays. It's, it is, everybody needs to be good to each other and to yourself. Mm-hmm. It's important. I think it's interesting that your two most recent roles have roots in the 60s. Mm. But, the, but they're two quite different roles, and they're from very different viewpoints. You just finished Diana Ross' tribute show at the <laughs> Clockwork, Tower, Clockwork Tower Cabaret. And, of course, she was the lead singer of The Supremes. Mm-hmm. And now you're playing a maid who was probably listening to Diana Ross. Oh, yes. Yes. Does playing Diana Ross help inform your work in Caroline at all? You know what? I, it does. It really does. Because it's still part of the movement. It's still part of the, um, the struggle, 
that um, African-Americans went through back then. Um, But they found happiness. You know, they found joy within the music. You know, music uh, is universal. So it touches a lot of people's lives and hearts. And and, um, so I think that's important, you know. And then also, you know, I said this last week in the show that, you know, it's hard being glamorous. I mean, Diana Ross is glamorous, (laughs) you know, and, you know, but um, she did it well. And um, a lot of African-Americans, you know, we look up to that and we, we you know, we want to be that way as well. So um, it is a, a, an honor and a privilege to uh, give tribute to her. And just like it's an honor and a tribute, uh, an honor and a privilege to pay tribute to Caroline, who is um, a fictional character. But at the same time, there were a lot of Carolines back in the day and probably still are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to play you a clip from one of your rehearsals for Caroline. just starting to work with the musicians in the show for this clip. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how you managed to do both performing in the one show and rehearsing for the other. <laughs> how intense was that period for you? <laughs> Very. Um, you know, there's always a, there's always a sense of, oh, gosh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. It's very demanding. Both shows, very demanding. Um, but because I love what I do, um, I put my heart and my soul into it. Everything that I do as far as performing. And um, I want to make this good. And not just for myself. I mean, I think that I deserve it for myself as well as I deserve to do my very best for the cast because we all want to do very well. And um, it's just an exciting thing. We all love what we do. Don't don't y'all love what y'all do? Okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's the only way to get through that's such right. yeah. so many things at yes. once. Um, that's really neat. Nathaniel and Sophia, you guys are both students at the Denver School of Arts, and you both performed in the area. Sophia, how do you manage things like reading and math while you're getting ready to do a play like this? Well, usually our call time is late enough so I can go home and do my homework and eat dinner and then go do the show and rehearsal and stuff. So it's been pretty manageable for this show. Good. I'm glad. So at school, do they give you time off for rehearsals, or how does that work at a specifically performing arts school? Um, I mean, sometimes, not usually, but, like, um, for things that take out of school time, just because they're, like, you know, they encourage everyone to, for, to be in the arts, um, you'll get, like, ex- some excused absences for, like, performances, um, but yeah, with this show, there's not really any like clashing with school. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they're understanding, but you're not off the hook yeah. for getting it all done. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nathaniel, I don't want to spoil anything for the people of the show again, but tell me a little bit about Noah and your role in the play. What about that character interests you? Um, well, he's like, he has, he's very complex because so his, his, his mom passed away fairly recently and his father remarried and he 
he doesn't really love who he remarried and he's he's very sad he's very he he's he doesn't have a lot of happiness and caroline really provides like joy to him hmm and Sophia, you're familiar with Nathaniel's work. Do you ever watch him performing and think, maybe I should try to do that? Or what do you like about his work? Um, I really like just seeing, because I feel like we do it a little bit differently. And it's yeah. good seeing a totally different version of what you thought the character was. And then you can like kind of mix that into what you're doing. And it's really yeah. fun. Uh, that seems like a cool part of getting to share a role. Nathaniel, tell me what you like about watching Sophia work. Um, Sophia is really, really fun to work, watch, um, and work next to. Um, but yeah, it's sort of the same thing. I take so much inspiration from all the stuff she does. And it's, it's so interesting too, to see the two different interpretations, um, sort of like take from each other and like almost not combine into one, but eventually like there's two different takes on it, obviously, but it's very like. We we take a lot of inspiration from each other, so it's it's really, really cool to yeah. see that. That sounds like fun. Yeah. We've heard a lot about the two of you, and we've heard a little bit of Mary Louise saying, can we hear a sample of the two of you? <laughs> uh, sure. <Okay. laughs> this is my winter song to you. The storm is coming soon. It rolls in from the sea. My voice a beacon in the night, my words will be your light to carry you to me. Is love alive? Is love alive? Is love... (laughs) That's beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Mary Louise, as the First Lady of Denver, Mm -hmm. you've made the performing arts a priority. You've set up a foundation bringing back the arts to make sure that the arts can be performed as a part of students' and youngsters' lives. And you're a product of the Denver Public Schools. Mm-hmm. How has the theater and arts landscape changed over the years? I'm assuming your foundation is around in part because it's not as robust as it was when you were a student. Correct. Um, you know, when I was in school, school many years ago, I'm not going to say what year. Um, <laughs> When I was in school, it was, you know, there was no doubt you had to take arts classes and from, I mean, you had to take band, you had to take visual arts, you had to take choir, drama, you had to take them. Um, Now we're finding that they're cut halftime, three-quarter time, or or just cut completely. And um, as soon as um, I knew that I had to take an initiative as first lady. I said, okay, you know what? I need to start a foundation called Bringing Back the Arts, and it's to restore the arts education programs in Denver schools um, to provide access to our cultural institutions and to promote our local artists. So um, with that, we have different competitions. We have a music competition for our high school students, a um, visual arts competition, which, by the way, uh, just found this out this morning that (laughs) Nathaniel was in one uh, the visual arts competition yeah. when he was in third grade. Oh, wow. and, yeah. And, you know, I, I have the picture. And yeah, so, so, yeah, it, it's really cool. Um, but we have the visual arts competitions open for kindergarten through 12th. And then we have a dance showcase that's available. But, you know, um, I had to make sure that we provided or helped to provide and restore the arts education program because I know what it did for me. I know what it has done for me. And it made me the person that I am right now. 
That so. sounds incredible. Mm. Well, thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so thank much. CPR's Avery Lill speaking with Mary Louise Lee, who stars in Caroline or Change. It opens Friday night at the Fox Theater in Aurora. The play also stars Sophia Dotson and Nathaniel Waite Lutz, who share the role of Noah. They attend Denver School of the Arts. Here are a few names most of us wouldn't associate with horror stories. Louisa May Alcott, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Edith Wharton. And yet, during the 19th century, the golden age of horror, women were prolific in the genre. And their stories are collected in a new anthology, More Deadly Than the Male, Masterpieces from the Queens of Horror. It's edited by author Graham Davis of Lafayette, Colorado. And Graham, welcome back to the program. Hi, great to be back. Thanks for having me again. Besides Mary Shelley, I think it's the men who've gotten the most attention. Edgar Allan Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Bram Stoker. How often were women writing horror stories in the 19th century? Um, quite a lot more than people think. Uh, and actually, after the book had gone to press, I found a story, uh, I think it was on the BBC, which claimed that up to 70% of horror in that uh, period was actually written by women. Did that surprise you? Uh, Yes, absolutely. Like you, I'd heard of Mary Shelley, um, but the others I I knew far less well. And as you say, uh, Edgar Allan Poe and uh, M.R. James in Britain and various others, the men uh, dominated the perception of the genre. It sounds like you could put together a second anthology if you wanted already. (laughs) Well, uh, yes, I think I probably could. I'll uh, have to see uh, if people like this one. Uh, So many of the names in your anthology are either unfamiliar or just so surprising. I mean, Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, wrote horror. Uh, Same with Louisa May Alcott, author of Little Women. Uh, Why is it that you think women were so prolific in the genre? Well, I think that... uh It depends, uh, but there wasn't very much an educated lady could do in those days. And some of the authors in my collection needed to support their families. They were widowed or abandoned or had uh, suffered some other mischance. And um, being ladies of uh, middle class or better and uh, educated, it simply would not do for them to work in a shop, even if they'd wanted to, or a factory, they would have been prevented. Uh, uh, Whereas the uh, writing uh, sort of got grandfathered into acceptable behaviour under the, the heading of literary and artistic pursuits. And so it gave them a chance to make money and support their families and others of course um, and ladies of uh, more stable situations um, it was an outlet for them because uh, there was very little that a a lady was allowed to do in those days and this means though that uh, the better known female authors of that time were doing essentially crossover they were writing in various genres including horror that's true. That's true. It's it's important to realize, I think, though, that the concept of literary genres was really in its infancy at that time. Oh. Um, it only really, it began to solidify 
during the uh, the late 19th century with the uh, the publication of of dime novels and certain types of magazines but it it didn't get to be a, a hard distinction uh, until the early 20th century with the early pulps and so uh, Writing was writing, and as you mentioned, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, I don't think she set out to write ghost stories, but she was a great New England regionalist, and some of those New England regional stories she wrote just happened to be ghost stories. I'm glad you mentioned New England, because uh, several of the stories in this anthology come from New England and use a very, very specific dialect that's, you know, not that easy to read. It can be as challenging in some cases as Shakespeare. Yes, it can. It's um, particularly for a modern reader. Uh, I think the practice of writing in dialect in a, a sort of semi-phonetic style was something that died out during the second half of the 20th century. It was perhaps seen as um, um, condescending at best and discrimination at worst. But uh, it was a very popular thing. You see certain uh, similarities with um, Sir Dickens in some cases where he tries to portray a thick Cockney accent or a Scottish one. Well, uh, let's get into the horror itself. Do you think that there is a different quality to horror from the women than from the men, a different perspective I definitely think there is, and and one must be careful here not to um, stereotype or generalize, um, you know, and and, uh, lump men authors, male authors in one basket and women authors in another simply on the basis of gender. But I do find on the whole that the the female writers have a much uh, lighter, defter touch with horror. Um, I find Poe can sometimes be a, a little sort of overcooked for my taste. <laughs> uh, whereas uh, to compare him to, say, um, Vernon Lee, who was actually born Violet Paget um, and wrote under a male pseudonym, um, they both treat with similar subjects. Uh, I mean, the uh, the story in, in my book, the uh, the hidden door from Vernon Lee, has certain similarities to uh, Pose the Telltale Heart in that it deals with the psychological effects of guilt. But Lee's touch is much lighter and much more um, much more psychologically in, informed, and uh, I find this to be the case across the board with the uh, the ladies who wrote horror. Um, in fact, in some cases, uh, it's hardly hardly visible to see any supernatural elements at all. I really enjoyed the hidden door again, a Violet Paget, but who wrote under the male pseudonym Vernon Lee. And Badgett herself is such an interesting character. Just tell us a bit about her life. She certainly is. Um, she was British, but born in Italy to the son of expatriate par- to the expatriate parents, uh, and uh, she grew up surrounded by Renaissance art and culture. Became an expert in that field. Published several books um, on Renaissance architecture and music. Uh, she was an out gay woman, which was exceptional in those times, sometimes wore what was characterized as male clothing. And, um, you know, she is best known today for her horror writing, but uh, it was only a small part of her output. 
You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking with the Colorado author Graham Davis, who has edited an anthology. It's called More Deadly Than the Male, Masterpieces from the Queens of Horror, and it focuses on 19th and 20th century female horror writers. I think my favorite story um, has to be Lost in a Pyramid by Louisa May Alcott. And I understand that it was way ahead of its time because Egyptomania, this fascination with Egypt, didn't really take off until the 1910s and 20s. But my goodness, I don't think anyone associates Louisa May Alcott with the birth of the mummy as monster. (laughs) No, that's right. And, And actually it all... The discovery of her story is what started me off on this book when I was researching for my previous anthology, Colonial Horrors, uh, which you and I talked about uh, last year, I uh, I just came across this and I thought, wait a minute, Louisa May Alcott wrote a mummy story? <laughs> and and then I, I started to look around. I, I couldn't use it for that anthology, obviously, but I put the thought aside and then I discovered more and more Harriet Beecher Stowe, Edith Wharton, uh, and... Um, You know, the more I looked, the more I found, and and that's how this was born. Um, Tell us just briefly this story of Lost in a Pyramid. It it reminds me of a much darker Jack and the Beanstalk. Yes, that's uh, that's a very good way of looking at it. Um, Essentially, uh, a young couple touring in Egypt... um, which was quite popular in the 19th century. Certainly Egyptomania didn't reach the heights that it did in the 20s after the discovery of uh, the tomb of Tutankhamun. But um, it was from the sort of mid-19th century on quite prevalent across Europe and North America. So this uh, Gilded Age couple are uh, wandering uh, Egypt and um, they get uh, one... uh, Yes, the male uh, character gets lost in a pyramid with his companion and um, in order to provide light to uh, find a way out, actually pull down a mummy from a niche and set fire to it. Um, Mark Twain actually had quite an interesting story about mummies used as locomotive fuel in Egypt at that time because there were just so many of them and they're covered in pitch and they burn quite well. Horrifying to the modern mind. Anyway, uh, out of the uh, the wrappings of this mummy comes a little box filled with seeds. And there's the usual sub-text sub, uh, about the pharaoh's curse and uh, all of that. And um, so the uh, the fellow's showing his girlfriend this uh, this box of seeds and telling his story. And then in the second half of the story... They each independently decide to plant one of the seeds to see what happens. And uh, this leads to some terrible results. I'll say no more than that. Truly horrific. I mean, the imagination of Louisa May Alcott in this story, Lost in a a Pyramid, has just stuck with me. And it makes me wonder why the women in your anthology just weren't better known for their horror writing in about the last minute here. Um, I think, honestly, it's because most of the short story market in those days was uh, focused on magazines and newspapers, and it was a far more ephemeral medium. It was uh, 
rare for uh, a woman's uh, work, particularly horror stories, to be anthologized in a book uh, the way that Poe and Dickens did um, with their original magazine and newspaper publications. And sadly, that, that seems to be the case. The newspapers and magazines have, have been lost to memory, whereas the books are a more permanent medium. And so some of these ladies have just sunk into undeserved obscurity. Maybe your book changes that. Thanks for being with us, Graham. Thank you very much, and uh, I hope it does. Graham Davis lives in Lafayette, Colorado. His new anthology, More Deadly Than the Male, collects horror stories by women in the late 19th century. Frankenstein and Dracula have nothing to you. Jack Norman Hyde, join the back of the queue. The female of the species is more deadly than the male. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Professional